The podcast you are about to listen to is not a medical podcast, nor is it designed to diagnose a condition. While there are medical experts on the show, any questions regarding medical care or concern should be directed to a primary care physician. Welcome to Game on Glio, the podcast providing hope, inspiration, education, and real conversations around the difficult journeys of grief and loss and being diagnosed with brain cancer, such as glioblastoma. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagen. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also, share us with a friend. You can follow us on Facebook at Game on Glio or on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast. Or you can visit our website, thegameongleopodcast.com for our blog, insights, and guest snapshots. Season two of the Game on Glio podcast is sponsored by GT Medical Technologies and Gamma Tile Therapy. Learn more at gtmedtech.com. This episode is brought to you by Mimivax LLC, developing immunotherapeutic vaccines and therapies for treatment of cancers such as glioblastoma. Learn more at mimivax.com. Poet Miguel Alvarez once said, You'll know when you get there. For now, just keep typing. I was reflecting on this quote the other day as I sit with the significance of what this month is and how much it weighs on me. As I let the quote sink into my bones, I reframed it to mirror my life's path right now. You'll know when you get there. For now, just keep walking forward. When you lose someone so vital and significant in your life, you lose your compass and you start to flounder. But the truth is, you have to trust your gut, your instincts, your soul. Your inner soul is your compass and it will help you find your way. So you just have to keep going forward even when you don't know where you're going or where there is. Keep going, and you'll know when you get there. Over the span of the last two years without Mike, I have come up against some hard truths. The fact of the matter is, life without Mike sucks. It's lonely. But what I'm learning is that this experience we call life is a journey. It's never ever a destination. It doesn't just end at a place or a point. You never stop moving forward, even when you don't want to move forward. I found that if I embrace my grief, and by embrace I mean I let it teach me, I let it move me, I let it guide me, then I don't see it as a threat. I can find peace along this new path, even though life with Mike in it would be so much better. I can find happiness, and hopefully I can learn to love life again. Because let's face it, 
just because chapters of our lives have already been written and can't be erased, they've been published. It doesn't mean we can't rewrite where the story goes from here. Endings don't have to be endings. They can be new beginnings. Isn't that what life is all about? Rewriting more than writing from scratch? So if you don't like what's on the page in front of you, change it. You might not be able to erase what's already been published, what's already been done, what's already happened. But you can always rewrite what's to come. This is what I'm learning right now. And these lessons are by no means easy. But I just keep walking forward, and I'll know when I get there. Our guest today, Dave Stevenson, founder of the Fierce Foundation and a widower, has learned his own lessons along his journey with loss. We speak to him next, after a brief message from our sponsor. Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery, knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how Gamma Tau therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, your neurosurgeon implants tiny gamma tiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go on for weeks, you get a head start against tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. Gamma tile therapy is for operable brain tumors of all types, including glioblastomas, brain metastases, and meningiomas. It is a one-time targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. Gamatile therapy is FDA cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Gamatile therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at gamatile.com. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this special episode eight of the Game on Glio podcast. In this episode, we are actually talking about grief and loss. We are talking about it as it relates to brain cancer, but it also happens to be falling on the two-year anniversary of my husband, my late husband, Michael's death. And with us today, our guest, Dave Stevenson, is the father of four boys and a marketing executive for the Bank of America. Widowed in 2018, when his wife, Karen, of 16 years, died from her battle with glioblastoma. He and his boys later founded the Fierce Foundation, which is a charitable organization to help patients, families, and caregivers that are facing rare cancer diagnoses. Dave, thank you so much for being with us today. Shannon, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So we are diving into some very heavy topics today, but I want to start with your life before brain cancer, your life before grief and loss, before death. Um, what did your life with Karen look like before she was diagnosed? Yeah, I mean, it's sometimes it's hard to remember what, what life was like um, before, but, you know, I tell you that we had, um, you know, a really happy and fulfilling life with the four boys who were pretty young at the time. Um, so we were very involved and have been very involved in our local community. So Karen had been a teacher mm -hmm. and she taught fifth grade at an elementary school. It's actually how I met her. My, she was a teacher with my 
mother, who was also a, a fifth grade teacher, and that's how we were introduced to one another. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Karen had she had stopped working shortly after we had our second, and mm-hmm. she was a stay at home mom. But she continued to be very involved uh, within the community. She served as president of the uh, PTO for the local elementary school. She had kicked off and overseen a number of initiatives and uh, events for the school from a fundraising Mm -hmm. perspective. And she was also really active with the kids from a sports perspective. So she coached them in basketball. She coached them in t-ball. I was the president of our local little league. You know, we, we invested an awful lot of time in the kids and spending time with family in being together really is, is what was most important to us. We certainly traveled when we had the opportunity, but, you know, Karen was really about the kids and making sure that they had everything that they needed and that she was very active and involved in their lives. So that's certainly a, a period of time that I'm very thankful for that the kids were able to have that opportunity. How old were you guys when you guys met? I was about 30 and I think she was probably 25 or 26. Okay. So you guys were fairly young. Yeah, we were pretty young and, uh, you know, we met and got married about a year later and, um, and then had our first, uh, about three years or so after we had met. Okay. So married for 16 years. So you guys were together over 17 years in total. We were, um, that's, that's quite an amazing life and journey to have. So Karen was diagnosed with glioblastoma. What year was she diagnosed and how old was she and and how old were were the boys? So she was diagnosed in October of 2016. In fact, we're coming up on the uh, on the day when she had her first kind of symptom that led us to the um, to the diagnosis. And so it was October of uh, 2016. So she was I think 41 uh, when she was diagnosed and the boys were uh, 13, 11, 8, and 6. So they were still pretty little uh, at the time of her diagnosis. Wow. So in 2016, she was diagnosed. What were the symptoms? What kind of rang the bell that something is really off and we needed to go in and get it looked at? Sure. So she had probably for um, about two weeks at the end of September in 2016 was um, just having some issues visually. So she would, you know, kind of see some echoes in the corner of her eye that, you know, kind of seemed like a, she she called it like a ceiling fan, like she could just see some things in the corner of her eye and it, um, you know, was very distracting and upsetting to her. She had gone to the doctor, um, you know, they kind of thought that it was probably some medicine that she was taking. And so, you know, she kind of went about her way. But um, then on uh, October 5th, it had gotten a little bit worse and she wasn't feeling right. And so um, she was at home with my youngest, who, um, as I said, was six at the time. Mm-hmm. And she had called her sister to take her to the doctor um, so that she wasn't driving, which was good. Um, right. And she ended up having a seizure in the doctor's office. Um, and so that's kind of what started the process. And so they took her to the hospital. You know, they did a a CAT scan and then ended up flying her. Uh, We live in the suburbs of Philadelphia. uh, Mm -hmm. So they ended up flying her down to the city. Um, And so really, very quickly, we had a pretty good sense of of what was going on. So at that point, and I I hate to kind of bring you back to that moment, but what what was your reaction? Uh, You know, what was the conversation between you and her when you guys got the news? Yeah, I mean, I think that the 
it was really a whirlwind, right, when it first happens, because um, as you know, you go from, you know, really living a, a completely normal and fulfilled life mm-hmm. uh, to being kind of tossed into something that is uh, completely unexpected, uh, bigger than you ever could have possibly imagined. Um, and so I think kind of the first reaction was um, a defense mechanism. And, you know, we were really both focused on the task at hand. We were focused on stability and normalcy uh, for the kids. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, initially when you get that diagnosis, and so, you know, by the time she quickly kind of had a surgery, um, and although we had a sense of what it was, obviously had to have the surgery, we went through the biopsy and then met with the neurosurgeon at the end of October to get the final diagnosis. And so, you know, I think we had been preparing um, for that news because I think there was an assumption that it was certainly a malignant um, tumor. But I think shock and disbelief is probably the initial um, emotion that we experienced. But I think I very quickly tried to move to resolve and hope for her. And I I thought it was really important that um, she feel that I was on task to um, do everything that we could to try and, uh, you know, address the situation and take it kind of one step at a time. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's hard to imagine all of that and, and to go back to it. But I think at the time it was it was really important for me to get kind of on task um, so that I could support her and provide the the type of support that she needed. And that's a heavy load, right? I mean, it's becoming the caretaker and trying to have enough hope for the both of you and then maintaining, obviously with you guys having four children, um, to also try to maintain that support and be that extra strength for that's a heavy load. Um, and it, it definitely, it changes, it changes everything, um, as, as you walk forward through that journey, being the caretaker of somebody that's going through this as much as it is a hard path for them, it is also an extremely hard path for the main, the main caretaker, the primary partner that's walking alongside of them. Certainly. And I, I agree with that. I think I, I've tried to put myself in, in her shoes and, and realize that uh, my journey, while complicated, wasn't nearly as difficult uh, mm-hmm. as hers, obviously. And so, um, but I agree with you, right? It was, the, again, what was most important to us was to be able to try and maintain some sense of normalcy we had and continue to have a, a tremendous mm-hmm. kind of support group. She uh, was one of seven sisters and brothers. And so uh, we had a really large support system that was able to help us. She had some really great friends who had experience with, um, you know, dealing with kids um, mm-hmm. in this situation. So the, the support group was incredibly helpful. Um, but I, I really, it was really important to me to try and stay really focused on the tasks and keep the kids involved in school and their activities um, and try to keep life moving forward as normal as we could for them um, so that they weren't dealing with additional disruptions, um, you know, beyond the uncertainty that I'm sure they felt. Right. So now she, she was 41. She was, when she was diagnosed, how old was she when she passed away? So she was 41 when she was diagnosed and she was just short of her, her uh, 44th birthday when she passed away. Um, So she passed away in February of 2018 and it had been about 16 months from the time of diagnosis, which, um, you know, was what the doctors had told us was the average 
life expectancy, which is frustrating because I think yeah. it's been that long for about 40 years. So Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, did they say, was there a trigger or something that really precipitated or kind of sped up her decline at the end? Or was it just that this was taking its course and what they were doing was not working? Because obviously there are so many different reasons for why people either go beyond the 16, the 15 month mark, or um, really don't make it to that point. And so we get a lot of questions from listeners about this. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I, I guess I don't know the answer. She had a very successful um, you know, surgery where they were able to remove all the visible tumor. But as you know, and as I'm sure mm-hmm. your listeners know, one of the complexities with glioblastoma is the fact that there are so many cells that they can't get because of the location. And mm-hmm. so recurrence is 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 almost always um, a reality, right? And so, you know, we were very successful with the initial, you know, kind of course of treatment and, uh, you know, standard of care. She had no recurrence or no regrowth for probably the first seven or eight months. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when she finally did, it was kind of slow at first. And we tried a variety of different chemotherapy agents. And so at the end, you know, I was really focused on trying to do uh, whatever we could do. I had taken her down to Bethesda, Maryland, to the National Institute of Health to try and, mm-hmm. you know, get her involved in some kind of clinical trial. And so uh, while I wouldn't change a thing, I think that that was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, I think there's also a reality that in order for her to enter into some of those clinical trials, uh, you know, we had to stop some of the treatment that she was on. Right. And so I think at some point we just got behind the tumor growth. Mm-hmm. And once you're behind the tumor growth, it's kind of hard to uh, to catch up again. Right. And that's, you know, that's the whole that's the whole journey, you know, with dealing with brain cancer, whether it's glioblastoma or another form. It's a matter of being willing and open to trying anything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So now after Karen passed away, how did you guys handle it? I mean, what did those first few months, that first year look like for you and the boys? I think that it was a blur, if I think, if I'm being honest, right? Yeah. So I think um, it was because I was trying to stay so kind of task focused. So as I had said before, you know, Karen was really the one who managed our house and understood Mm -hmm. everything about the kids in school and, and all of their, you know, doctors and everything that had to do with the boys. And so I had to, you know, really quickly kind of get myself up to speed and immerse myself in all of those activities. And so I was very focused on those tasks. And so, you know, probably the adrenaline the need to kind of keep things moving forward and keep us together mm-hmm. um, was really what enabled us to be able to get through. I remember, and I've talked about it with the boys since then, really for the first six months, we talked about uh, moving as a unit. So we did everything together. So if somebody had a sporting event, everybody went. Um, I actually took them on a bunch of different trips in those first six months just for us to be together wow. um, because it was really important to me that they understood that, you know, we were going to make it through this unexpected and terrible um, event, but mm-hmm. 
you know, their mother would have wanted them to find ways to be happy and find ways to move forward. And so it was really important to me to try and stay focused on that. And then honestly, as I said before, we're very lucky to have a really great support system. So, you know, the community really came together. As I said, both Karen and I were really actively involved in the community. So, um, you know, we had dinners for, you know, most of the nights from Karen's diagnosis until six months after she passed. Um, You know, she was one of seven. So her, you know, brothers and sisters were incredibly helpful. The boys have 15 cousins. And so they had the opportunity to be around their family and their cousins all the time. Karen has um, four sisters. And so, you know, her sisters were in the house and around. One of her sisters stayed with us really for the first three weeks um, after Karen died. So, you know, that support Mm -hmm. was really what enabled me to be able to have the strength to be able to do what needed to be done to keep everything moving forward. So I think we're very blessed with the support system and then really focused on, you know, kind of staying together um, as a group and and recognizing that we were um, all going through it together. I think, I know we're going to talk about, um, you know, grief specifically, but we were also really open about the way we were feeling, um, you know, about when we were missing her, um, mm. about talking about her. Also, we were always were and have and continue to be, you know, very open about things like cancer. So, you mm. know, I remember, you know, the boys and I talked about it. You don't realize how many cancer commercials there are on the television until you've gone <laughs> through it. Yes. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we didn't shy away from any of that, right? Mm-hmm. We, we had been touched and had experienced it. Um, and so we really, there weren't any topics that were taboo. Um, and I think that that was very helpful in enabling us to, uh, you know, kind of move forward as best we could. And it sounds like you really did receive a lot of support, not only from your own immediate family, but from your in-law family. It sounds like everybody kind of rallied around each other. I mean, do you still keep in touch with Karen's siblings? Do you guys still talk to each other, share memories of, you know, of her? I mean, you know, what does that look like? Absolutely, we do. Yeah. And and so they're still um, a really big part of our life. And, and I feel very blessed to, uh, you know, really have them uh, as a support system. In fact, we still, um, every summer we go with them on their family vacation and all stay together. Um, one of Karen's sisters lives two minutes away and her oldest is the same age as my youngest. And so they're very good friends. And so, yes, we have stayed very close with all of her brothers and sisters and her parents. And that mm-hmm. has been really, 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 really important. I mean, one of the things, one of the only things when we talked about, um, you know, a potential future um, that Karen wouldn't be in when Karen mm-hmm. and I talked about it, the one thing that she asked is that um, I made sure that the kids continued to be um, around their cousins, their aunts and their grandparents. And so, um, they've all made it really, really easy for me. And so I am incredibly thankful to Karen's parents, um, to Karen's brothers and sisters. Um, everybody has really continued to be um, an active part of their lives. And that has been really, really important to us. Yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing 
the difference that that can make, you know, and, and we've talked on this show a few times for a lot of individuals when going through grief and loss, they suffer secondary losses and nobody really talks about those secondary losses and what the impact that that has on the primary caregiver on the person who lost their partner or their spouse. And so losing some of those extra supports really just, it's re-grief. It's kind of re-traumatizing the situation. So knowing that they really rallied around you and you really rallied around them and you guys had each other after the fact and all these years later, which is not that long, but that you guys are still a big part of each other's lives and still talk to each other, that really does provide a lot of weight and significance and and really can help carry individuals through a very difficult time. So it's great to hear that. And you are very blessed to have that because not everybody does. Yeah, it really, uh, it really makes a, a tremendous difference. And I mean, your, your point about the secondary losses is, is very real. Um, you know, I would say the way that that manifested itself with me was in some of the friendships that we had. So, mm-hmm. you know, as a as a married couple with kids that had been together for a long time, you know, so many of our social circle were other married couples with kids. And, yeah. you know, it, it's not that those people weren't there for me because they were. Mm-hmm. But I think I found myself um, feeling uncomfortable in those situations or it heightening the sense of loss that I already felt. Um, and so I think that is one part of my life that has changed, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that it became very difficult, um, you know, for me to maintain some of those relationships because the identity of those relationships were built around being a couple um, you know, having kids and sharing, um, you know, kind of similar circumstances. So I think that, you know, the concept of the secondary loss is very real. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do think that it, it really exacerbates some of what a grieving person is going through after an event like this. Right. And that's interesting. You know, it's really interesting and fascinating to get the perspective from, to be quite honest, a male widower, because we don't, talk about the male perspective often. A lot of people, when they talk about being a widow, and there's a lack of support groups in general for mm-hmm. you know people who have lost a partner or a spouse, but for men, it's, it's a different arena. It is a different feeling. It is a different mindset, especially when you are the one who now has to be the primary caregiver with the kids. So to see that perspective that it was you who kind of felt different around those social groups where with me, especially just with the friends, and I suffered some other secondary losses on top of that, but with the friend groups, there were certain friends that I had been part of those circles. They were married. We'd known them since, you know, Mike and I were dating, but they grew up with him. And so after Mike had died, they backed off because it was too hard for them they felt like, you know, we can't keep staying around you because it's just a constant reminder where I didn't want anything else to change. So from my perspective, I was like, I don't want to lose anybody else. I was holding on very tightly because there was a vulnerability there and I didn't want anything else to change because so much had already changed. So it's interesting to see your perspective and how, you know, you walked through that process versus, you know, the perspective I was having walking through that process. And for me too, 
we were just starting to have a family. So we didn't have some of those connections to other families with children. All of our friends had had children and we were just starting that process. And so there was a loss of that as well because that never came to fruition. Yes. Yes. I, I completely get that. I think, you know, one of the, one of the complicated things about grief and when something like this happens is you also lose kind of your future plans, even though, yeah, you know, they, they, they weren't real. Um, but you know, in your mind, they're real and you had imagined kind of a future, um, that just won't come. Right. And so I think mm-hmm. that's definitely, um, that's definitely where you can get kind of caught up in, you know, some of the emotion of it. Um, if I focus too much on what isn't going to happen, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, that I had planned on happening. So that's definitely a, um, a complicated part of it. But, um, I do think that, you know, your, your point about, and I have, I've had the opportunity to participate in, a number of different groups with, um, you know, widows and widowers. You are right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Most of the time, it's widows and not widowers, mm-hmm. and there's a number of reasons for that. I think more men, um, you know, pass away early than women, but also less men um, are probably likely to, you know, try and seek out that type of support. Um, and so I remember, you know, a couple of times we had gone. Um, and participated in some grief events or, um, you know, grief counseling, and they were group events. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the boys were um, almost all the time, you know, everybody else that was there was a woman. Um, But there were a handful of times when a man walked in and the boys would look at me and kind of give me a thumbs up, like, hey, there's (laughs) another guy. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it, it, it is... It is interesting as a as a man, you know, to kind of go through this because you're right. I had to, you know, really, you know, teach myself how to do some different things. And one of the other things that I found is that, you know, as I was interacting with, you know, couple friends that we had had or even new people, I tended to have a lot more in common with the women than I had with the men. Mm, interesting. Um, so that, you know, that that was kind of an interesting adaptation um, as well. So. I, I want to explore this a little bit from from a guy's perspective. You talk a little bit about things that you had to teach yourself, things that you had to start doing that in the dynamic of the relationship you didn't have to do before. And I've met some other guys that are widowers that have struggled with some of these aspects too. So what are some things that you had to teach yourself? What are some things that you had to fundamentally change about how you approached daily living and taking care of the household and the boys that, you know, used to be Karen's responsibility? Yeah. I mean, pretty much all of it. Right. So, (laughs) um, you know, I, I didn't really, I didn't really cook, uh, you know, I, Mm -hmm. I grilled. And so I had to teach myself, you know, as I said before, for about six months after she passed, we had a, a meal train kind of going every day. And at some point I kind of sent out a note to everybody and said, listen, I'm going to, it's time for me to be a big boy. Um, and mm-hmm. I've got to figure out how I'm going to survive in this new reality. And so, um, you know, I really had to, you know, kind of first teach myself how to, how to cook and not just cook, but also cook stuff that the kids liked. Um, so that, and I think, you know, really being close to kind of their teachers and what was happening at school, really understanding kind of their doctor's appointments and being very aware of all that stuff. And so, um, you know, I, I did it the only way that I know how, which, which is which I tried to become very organized. And so, mm. um, you know, we created kind of very 
um, you know, intricate schedules. I did meal planning. I, you know, created journals where I kept track of their medical histories and kind of what was happening. And so, um, that's impressive. You know, I, I, I really had to kind of create routine for myself in mm-hmm. order to be able to, um, you know, adjust and figure it out. Also, I think it's important to note, you know, when we talk about support systems, I was, you know, really blessed to have a very supportive work environment. And so I was given a tremendous amount of uh, flexibility in terms of working from home before working from home was a thing, you know, having the flexibility to be able to kind of just drop off, um, Mm -hmm. you know, when I had to do things for the kids. And so I know that everybody is not as fortunate. And so I was very fortunate to be able to not have to worry about losing my job, um, you know, but being given the flexibility to be able to deal with life Mm -hmm. as I figured out how to, um, you know, kind of manage through that. And so I think that was an important part too. Yeah, that's extremely important to touch on because for employers and and if there are employers out there that are listening, I hope they take note of this. Grief does not stop after six months to a year. Mm-hmm. It takes a while for um, the person who is left behind, essentially, and their family to get their footing and to really navigate what this new life looks like. So it's, there are a lot of people that there's an expectation that, you know, six months in, a year in, a year and a half, oh, you're good. You should be good now. But it really takes a long time to figure out the nuances and to, and to get your footing again and to figure out what those foundations are going to be without that person there. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Yeah. From having that kind of support from your boss and, 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 and your company and, and having it be ongoing is vital because it doesn't stop. And and grief, it never really goes away. It just takes on some different forms. It may feel or look differently. It evolves, but it never goes away. So there's always hiccups and little stumbles that you have along the journey because it's a journey. Absolutely. And and I think you bring up a really good point that I think that there is probably an opportunity, um, you know, for employers to probably have um, you know, maybe more thoughtful considerations in the way that they handle bereavement. Because as mm-hmm. you know, you know, most places, um, you know, will give you a week, uh, you know, to take yeah. off or managing that, which is just a ridiculous approach and amount of time to be able to deal with something, mm-hmm. um, you know, particularly given how profound it is um, in kind of changing your life. And I think what you get if you if you have a supportive employer, um, if we're strictly talking from a from a benefit standpoint, I think what you get is you get a very loyal employee, right? If, right. if you do yeah. it right and you manage yep. it the right way, I think you get the opportunity to have somebody who really believes in the support system and and you know is really going to come back and be in a position where they're really anxious to be able to contribute to the organization that was there for them when they needed it to be, and so that's definitely you know kind of a big part of it, right? So. Let's dive into starting the Fierce Foundation because you started this in honor of Karen. How long after she died did you start the foundation and what was the purpose? I mean, when you originally started having these conversations about, hey, let's put a foundation together because that's no easy feat, what what drove that conversation and, and what were you hoping to get out of it when you first started it? Sure. Well, I think the reality is, is that from the moment that she passed away, it was really important to the boys and I for us to be able to do something that would make sure that her memory 
um, lived on and that she was remembered, right? Mm-hmm. So admittedly, um, you know, our original impetus was to be able to have some way for her death to not be in vain and for us to be able to um, do some of the things that were important to her. One of the things that she talked about while she was going through her treatment was that she really wanted to be able to get better so that she was able to help people that were going through something similar. And so, you know, we knew that we wanted to do something to remember her, something in her memory and something that was in line with what she wanted to be able to do, Mm -hmm. which was to be able to take care of people who were going through something similar. And so, you know, from really from right away, um, you know, we knew that we wanted to do something. I think we, we were smart enough to allow ourselves as a family to go through kind of that grieving and rebirth process to be able to figure out how we were going to move forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, But after we did that, about a year later, you know, we really started to kind of think through what we wanted to do and to be able to put kind of the wheels in motion to be able to do it. And so we ended up um, launching the Fierce Foundation just about um, two years. So we did it really on her birthday, just about two years after um, she had passed away. Now that happened to time almost perfectly with the start of the pandemic. And so the timing of the launch oh, um, wasn't the best, but we've been very fortunate to be able to have a, a lot of support and be able to get off the ground, despite the fact that we launched at the onset of the pandemic. So now, so you guys launched in 2020. Where are you guys now? What's your mission and goals for the Fierce Foundation? And so as I said, I think we, you know, we got a slow start because of, of the pandemic. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we were able to, and I'm fortunate again, to have a lot of her um, family members and friends that have been uh, really important contributors to um, helping us kind of get this off the ground and, you know, kind of get the word out and, and create some events and do some fundraising. And so, you know, we have been uh, very focused on um, fundraising activities since the launch and we're actually, you know, starting our grant process on January 1st. And so, um, you know, we will be in a position to disperse grants starting um, on January 1st. And so, you know, our, our mission is really, it's kind of twofold. So certainly from a local advocacy standpoint and from a grassroots standpoint, one of our primary objectives is to make sure that we are helping and supporting patients and families and caregivers that are dealing with rare cancer diagnoses. I think when we were thinking about what we wanted to do, I think we recognize that there are lots of organizations out there um, to support cancer. And a lot Mm -hmm. of those organizations are focused on, um, you know, some of the more common cancers, which makes sense, right? Right, But I think we're very focused on trying to figure out a way to raise awareness and create advocacy and provide support for people that are very specifically dealing with rare cancer diagnoses, obviously with a, a focus on glioblastoma, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is obviously what Karen was diagnosed with. So, you know, first and foremost, uh, our objective is to be able to provide that support. And so, you know, that can be support like uh, meals, it could be transportation, it could be therapeutic services like massage or Reiki, you know, things that were, you know, kind of very important to Karen. It could be, mm-hmm. um, you know, support for kids. Um, it could be providing support after a loss around therapy or grief therapy. So there are a number of different 
things that we want to be able to support, but that primary focus is on providing some of the necessary infrastructure to help those that are dealing with diagnosis, dealing with treatment, and dealing with loss in order to make sure that they are able to gain some of the support that they need. There's a second part of that, as I said, which is the advocacy part of it. And so I think we want to be able to partner Mm-hmm. with other organizations like yours mm-hmm. that are very focused on raising awareness and creating advocacy for um, the fight against you know this terrible brain cancer. And so right. we want to be able to be in a position to be able to um, have that voice and be supportive of it. And so there's a couple of you know things that I want to be able to do long term as well with the foundation, including mm-hmm. creating more of that awareness, helping improve things like um, insurance payments for um, grief counseling and and mm-hmm. therapy, because I know from participating in a number of these, right, that, that, that there are a lot of people that aren't pursuing grief counseling because it is cost prohibitive. Mm-hmm. So there are things that we want to do. And then I think also from an advocacy standpoint, you know, ironically, I work in um, the data field. So my paying job is around, um, you know, understanding and leveraging data um, to better understand um, consumers. And so I think one of the things that struck me through my journey, and I don't know if you had a similar experience, but I think I was frustrated by how little questions there were as we went through the journey in terms of, um, you know, behavioral characteristics or, mm-hmm. um, you know, other things that, you know, kind of Karen had experienced or went through, through her life or, um, you know, patterns that she did to try and understand, um, you know, where there could be some causality with her Mm -hmm. eventual diagnosis. And so I think I've been struck by how little data was collected in terms of understanding some of those things. And so, you know, I remember, you know, one of the things that stuck in my head is I had read an article um, about a pair of brothers who, um, you know, had a sibling who was going through um, a, a diagnosis of um, uh, Alzheimer's. And so, you know, they felt that there was a similar lack of clarity around um, data capture around that. And so they partnered with Microsoft, they build a database um, to collect information. And now that information is used, um, you know, by doctors kind of across the United States. And so I think there is an opportunity both to um, advocate for people dealing with this um, diagnosis in terms of support, in terms of treatment options, um, in terms of therapy. And then I also think there's an opportunity for us to improve the information that um, the doctors and the scientists have access to, to help them better understand this disease. And so, mm-hmm. you know, beyond kind of that grassroots local effort, you know, that we are actively pursuing in our ability to provide help to patients, families, and caregivers. I think I also endeavor, um, you know, to make kind of profound change uh, more broadly as time goes on. That's going to take some time, um, you know, but we're going to work to kind of build the partnerships and do what we can do to kind of continue to raise awareness. Things like this, Shannon, and the work Mm -hmm. that you're doing, is so important to that, right? It's an opportunity to bring together people uh, who are going through this and and help us to kind of have a voice. And so, um, you know, I can't thank you enough for what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Um, that means a lot. It's 
you know, the whole purpose of starting the podcast was because there was a gap. There was a gap in, you know, there's there's foundations that are supporting various communities, but there was a gap with information sharing and having it be in real time. And so knowing that somebody can be sitting in their car and listening to really important and vital information and to have that information sharing in an audio and in a verbal platform like this and a media platform like this is crucial because again, it's a form of data capturing, but in real time as individuals are expressing and talking about their journeys. And it's, it's why anytime I talk to a caregiver or a patient, I ask, how did this start for you? What were the symptoms for you? What did life look like? You know, what was going on ahead of time? Because I think that this is so important for those who don't understand glioblastoma and the dynamics of it. And there is a frustration, I think, in the community at large, across the nation, across the globe, of not being able to pinpoint, is there an environmental piece? Is there a genetic, an inherent genetic component? Exactly. And I think that the doctors are... they're starting to understand, you know, could there be a link or connection between, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia, and a pattern with developing glioblastoma if somebody's inherently exposed to possibly getting something like that down the road, if there's a genetic component there, could that link back to, and there's, so they're starting to kind of weigh different options, you know, there's been tons of talk around cell, you know, cell use and that holding the phone right up to your ear. And, you know, if uh, mm-hmm. depending on what type of environmental factor you're in, you know, like Mike was an engineer. So I always go back to was he exposed to something along the way that, mm-hmm. you know, contributed to, you know, these glial cells going haywire, which is basically what happens. And um, so I think that yeah, there is a frustration. And I think the more that we can start to understand that dynamic and find a way to break that blood-brain barrier, and so data collection is crucial. I mean, it is just, it's vital to be able to really get behind, okay, you know, making some massive strides and momentum in trying to slow this down. Even though this is a rare cancer, it's kind of a catch-22, right? It's that double-edged sword. You're glad it's a rare cancer, but then it also makes it extremely hard to treat because it's a rare cancer. <laughs> you know, you don't exactly. you don't want it to become breast cancer. You don't want it to have hundreds of thousands of people being diagnosed. You know, you want it to stay on the lower side. But at the same time, because of that, the backing behind it and the, and the lack of understanding and information sharing has has made it very difficult. So it's kind of this double-edged sword. Yeah, and I don't, and listen, I, I don't accept that it just happens, right? Mm-hmm. That there, we don't know why it happens, just something goes wrong. Um, and so I don't think that we should accept that it just happens. Um, right. I think that we kind of owe it to um, everybody, kind mm-hmm. of past, present, and future, um, you know, to really understand if there is anything that we're missing. Right. Um, because that could certainly make the difference between um, improving outcomes, mm-hmm. extending life, and you know making a breakthrough in terms of understanding you know this cancer. Right, and I completely agree with you. Doing the work that you guys are doing, here we are now. We're we're at the tail end of 2022. Where where are you guys now with the Fierce Foundation? With you know you said you had a boy. Uh, one, your oldest son is in college. Where are you within the grief process? Where are you and the boys? You know, you talk about how 
at the time that you guys were really starting to walk through this after she passed, it was hard to see the road ahead. You know, it was hard to kind of figure out what a future could look like because you had a future in mind for so many years. Are you able to see the road ahead now? Where are you in the process? Um, And has building the foundation really helped that? I think that's a great question, right? And you've alluded to it a couple of times. I think that one of the things that I think has come from all of this is that I try to be very focused on the present and the moment that I'm in. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, now part of that I think is the fact that I think that I, I don't want to say wasted time, but spent an awful lot of time um, lamenting over, you know, a future that was only imagined um, and not realized. And so while I think it is important, obviously, you know, in order to kind of live, you have to do some planning, Mm -hmm. you know, while it is important for us to think about kind of the journey ahead, and we do that, I really try my best. I'm not always successful. But I really try my best to kind of live in the present moment that we're in um, and take all the joy out of the present moment that we're in um, that I can. So, you know, where are we in the journey? I think the reality is, and you know this, that, you know, grief doesn't just end. Um, It's always there. And there are unknown and unforeseen triggers that sometimes happen that kind of pull us all the way back, you know, to the beginning. Thankfully, the one thing that that has happened in our experience is that those, you know, kind of pullbacks are, you know, fewer and far uh, between than they were, you know, certainly in the beginning. But the reality is, is that, um, you know, we'll always deal with her loss in, in one way or another. And I don't want that to go away. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important part of our reality and our world. And I think if it were to completely go away, I feel like we would be doing a disservice to all the work that Karen did to raise these boys, to, you know, be able to help me be the father that I am. And so I don't want to, you know, kind of forget any of that. I think it's incredibly important. So I'm not trying to outrun our grief. I embrace it. I know that it's there. I know that we need to recognize it. I know that we need to talk about it. And so my focus is on providing, you know, kind of a safe environment for the kids, you know, being the parent that they need me to be as best I can. I don't always do it right. (laughs) And to help them be focused on finding whatever makes them happy, but most importantly, making sure that they realize that they have each other that they have me and that we need to make sure that we appreciate and enjoy, you know, the people that are in our lives that love us. And so I think the quick answer is we deal with the grief every day, right? Right. Um, Pain isn't necessarily as raw as it was in the beginning, you know, but we deal with the grief every day. We are aware, um, you know, of, you know, kind of who we are and where we are and what our story is. Mm -hmm. But we're also focused on making sure that, you know, we're moving forward. We are honoring her memory and we're doing what I know she would have wanted us to do, which is to figure out ways to find the joy. And that's extremely important. You know, I think you've you've touched on a couple of things that are just so vital in sharing grief stories and, and the journeys that we walk through. And I think that these most interesting, you said, you know, we're not trying to outrun our grief and that really sticks with me. I'm curious as you guys are evolving through this journey of grief, 
I've started to see grief as a teacher, as hard as it is at times. And I'm wondering, and that to me is kind of a journey and a, and a surprise in and of itself. I'm wondering what surprised you about the grief journey? What was something that you didn't expect to go through or feel after she passed? That's a great question. Um, that's probably a, a difficult one to answer, but I think the, you know, the, the persistence of the grief, right. The way that it had the ability to kind of bring me back to the moment that it all started. But to your point, I think the fact that I try my best to lean into it when that happens mm -hmm. so that I am able to appreciate what we do have and to appreciate the blessings that that we have and to really try to be present and to you know kind of push away some of the noise and and really be able to focus on what's important. So like you, I think that there are some things, you know, that that the grief and, and the process has given me. And some of that is really being able to be more appreciative of, um, you know, kind of the mundane and be mm -hmm. more appreciative of the everyday moments. And so I think that surprised me in that I think when I started the journey, I expected grief to be a bad word. Mm -hmm. um, and I expected it to be something that was just devastating that I wanted to get away from. Mm -hmm. But I think it's been important that, um, you know, we talk about it, that we recognize it, and that we figure out the best way to kind of lean into it. And, and, and again, not try uh, to get away from it, but acknowledge that kind of it's a part of our story. I love that. Um, and to build upon that today, in this moment, here we are at the end of October. What's one exciting thing that you have going on in your life currently? Well, I think there's there's a couple of things, right? I think I'm I'm excited about the kids and and where they are with school and you know, kind of continuing their life once they, you know, kind of leave some of the protection of um, home and me. And so I think that's something that's certainly exciting. And then I've also, you know, been fortunate enough to uh, meet somebody, you know, and, and so dating has been something that um, <laughs> is difficult and yeah. complicated, um, you know, but I think I've been fortunate um, recently to have met someone that is patient that is accepting of our past, that understands the role that Karen um, plays and the, and the role that Karen will continue to play in going forward and acknowledging that, you know, Karen is their mom and in really celebrating, you know, kind of what she meant to them. And then just really understands how important my continued uh, relationships with her family are uh, mm -hmm. for both me and the kids and, you know, has been very accepting of that. And so, you know, dating can be complicated. Finding the right person who's able to deal with all of those things is important. And I think I've been, you know, lucky to be able to find somebody who is patient and understanding, accepting, and wants to be a part um, of our past and wants to understand her family, you know, and really wants to kind of be a part of that. But it's it's a very, you know, difficult and complicated process. But um, I think that there is hope um, and there is an opportunity. And I do know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Karen would want me to be happy. And I think one of the things that's been really <clears throat> you know, kind of refreshing to me is that, you know, when I, when I talk to 
Karen's parents and when I talk to Karen's siblings who's who are so important to me and mm-hmm. whose continued involvement in our lives are so important to me. And, you know, when I talk to them about meeting someone and and obviously feeling anxiety and being conflicted about, um, you know, how to talk to them about that, um, in every single circumstance, I've been incredibly fortunate that they have always said the same thing to me, which is, we just want you to be happy. Uh-huh. Right. And so I think that has been, um, a really important part of, of making it something that I'm able to do, um, mm-hmm. and that I'm able to do and to allow myself to be happy and to allow myself to be able to, to move forward. And so, um, you know, it's, it's relatively new, um, and it takes a while, I think, to, to be in the right place, to be able to, um, to do it. And I made very deliberate decisions along the way. Um, you know, I never, for four years, I didn't introduce anybody to the kids. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a very deliberate process for me because at the end of the day, making sure that the kids were okay um, has been and will continue to be um, the most important part um, of all of that uh, to me. It's really important that the kids feel safe, that the kids feel like they're a part, um, that the kids know, um, you know, the, the, the memory and the role that their mom will play in their lives forever. Um, and so I've, I've really attempted to be very deliberate in, in all of that. It's powerful. It's powerful to have those kind of conversations, those meaningful conversations. It is a very, very nuanced and difficult journey to, um, be in this new arena of being single again and trying to navigate what that looks like, especially when you're young, when you're really young and you, you expect it to go through life with somebody by your side, not having to worry about that ever again. Um, and then having to start that journey all over again. And in this day and age, it's different, (laughs) um, to put it mildly. So it's that's exciting, and I'm thrilled to hear that for you, and and to see that kind of support coming from Karen's family and the boys. And you, your voice sounds elevated when you talk about this this new relationship. And so it's great to hear that kind of energy coming out of what was a difficult situation, and knowing that you know things are falling into place a little bit, and you guys are learning a lot from this journey. The Fierce Foundation is doing some wonderful things. I know you guys just celebrated. You guys just had a, a gala or an event recently. I we think did in September. Did. How did that go? It went great, right? We, we again, we've been very fortunate to have a, a community that is very supportive of um, our mission and our objective in helping us kind of spread the word. And so, you know, we had an event at a local restaurant called the Cornerstone Wayne, and it was a very successful event. And so, um, you know, those are the types of things that um, are helping us to both fundraise but also raise awareness. And as I said before, the really exciting point that we're at is that um, on January first, we're going to start kind of our grant disbursement process where mm-hmm. we'll really begin to start, um, you know, giving back to folks. And so there'll be information on our website about that process. And so um, that's a really exciting development that is, um, you know, coming within the next couple of months. That's amazing. And so for all of our listeners, as we're wrapping up, what where can listeners go um, to learn more about the Ferris Foundation, to donate, to get involved, to help, to learn about upcoming events? Um, where can they visit? And if you're on social media, um, give us some of the social media as well so that people can can help support the work that you guys are doing. 
Absolutely. I first of all, I really appreciate um, you know the opportunity for us to be able to partner with you and and be able to raise awareness and you know kind of get the word out. You know, our website is uh, www.fierce-foundation.org. So you know that's a, a website where people can go and learn a little bit more about Karen, um, learn a little bit more um, about our story, and you know kind of keep up to date on what's happening as we enter kind of this next phase of the foundation. There is also a, a link for uh, donations directly there okay. on the website. Um, on social media, you know we have an Instagram account which is just the Fierce Foundation. So that is another great opportunity for people to to be able to see and understand kind of what we're doing and to be able to partner with us. That's terrific. Thank you so much for sharing all of this information. Thank you for talking with us today and really helping us to see and understand what this journey can look like from a caregiver's perspective. You know, we've had a lot of patients on, but there are two sides um, to every story. And being able to honor Karen's memory, doing the work that you're doing, helping and supporting the community, and you know, hopefully at some point even even larger than than that, and and really being an advocate for rare cancers such as glioblastoma, it means a lot. So um, you know, I'm proud to have you on. I'm proud to have shared your story and to be part of you know the legacy that you and the boys are continuing in Karen's memory. Um, I think she would be so proud of you guys. So I'm so grateful to you guys for the work that you're doing. And this has been a really great conversation. So to everybody that out there that's listening, please go visit their website, support the work that they're doing, um, visit them on social media. And with that, we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Mimivax LLC. Developing immunotherapeutic vaccines and therapies for treatment of cancers such as glioblastoma. Learn more at Mimivax.com. I want to thank Dave Stevenson for joining us today, talking about his journey through grief and loss. Grief and loss is such a vital topic. We need to be open. We need to be vulnerable. We need to be sharing our stories of our journeys because it's not only how we help ourselves heal, but it's how we help others heal. And no matter the way we have come into grief and loss, every one of us is touched by a loss of some type in some way, shape, or form. By talking about our weaknesses and our strengths within the journey that we go through, We help to elevate others. We lift each other up. We help inspire. And we all feel connected, less alone. This world is vast. It is busy. There is noise and news and traumas and tribulations, worries, fears, economic woes, financial strain around every corner. We all have daily stressors, but there is a way for us to all feel connected. And if we lift each other up, then we provide ourselves with strength to get through. Thank you all for listening to this episode today. I dedicate this particular episode 
to my late husband, Michael Traphagen, who two years ago this week died from glioblastoma. As I continue to walk through my journey, I carry his love, his humbleness, and his strength with me as I continue to try to grow and to try to open myself up to curiosity, to hope for the future, to seeing where this road takes me. And wherever it takes me, I will be taking all of you along for the ride. Next month, join us as we talk to Dr. Randy Diamico from Lenox Hill Hospital and Northwell Health. Until next month, thank you so much all for listening. Enjoy the rest of your fall, the rest of this October, and have a wonderful, happy Halloween. You've been listening to the Game on Glio podcast, the podcast that is designed to educate, advocate, and tell the real stories of those walking the journey of brain cancers such as glioblastoma and grief and loss. If you like our show, please share us with others. Follow us on Instagram at Game on Glio podcast or on Facebook at Game on Glio. You can visit our website and our YouTube channel. You can find us anywhere podcasts are played.